All right, so we're talking about the love of God today, of course, as is noted on this handout. And we're going to cover three things. The first is establishing that God is love. The second is how he shows his love. And the third is how we experience it more. Because how God shows his love and how you experience it are two different things in that God can be showing love all the time, but we just don't know that he is. And we're not doing the things that allow us to experience it very well. And so we have to know both. So those are the three things we'll look at. Uh, we can start by going to 1 John 4. And we'll read starting in verse 7, but we're going to focus on verse 8. 1 John 4, starting in verse 7, says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. So again, focusing on verse 8. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. This is the only place in scripture where you will find a certain characteristic that is equated with God himself. So if there's one character trait that God is, the only word that the Bible uses for that is love, telling us that love is who God is. Now for most people, of course, love is a feeling. This is the first bullet point. That comes and goes. But for God, love is who he is. It's part of his nature. And that means it's impossible for him to ever not love his creation. There's never a point in time where he doesn't love because love is who he is. And love is not a response that he has to something we do. It's just simply part of his nature. And it's always constant and always fervent. We're going to look at Deuteronomy 7, a passage in there now. Um, and this is where we start getting into little bit more detail about why why God loves us other than the fact that it's in his nature Deuteronomy 7 we'll start in verse 6 fun fact about Deuteronomy or about the Bible in general uh, the love of God is not mentioned at all until you get to Deuteronomy in fact the first time love is ever mentioned is in the fourth chapter of Deuteronomy 7 talks about it in more detail and that's largely because it was kind of a hidden or more mysterious thing because the Israelites were the first people that God actually chose as a nation and was able to form a relationship with them in a closer, more meaningful way. And that's why his love was able to be revealed. So when you start in verse 6, it says, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you are the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, for that reason, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So that's where we will stop. So the first sub bullet point I have under there, it says that God loves you just because he loves you. Um, the reason for it being written that way is because it actually reads that way in Deuteronomy saying, the Lord didn't set his love on you because you were anything special, but 
simply just because he loves you. So he set his love on you because he loves you, and that's it. Um, it just is emphasizing that it's it's about God's character and God's nature, not our behavior. That's what makes God's love what it is. That's that first point. And the second is from the second half of verse 8 where it says, because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers. And that tells you that God's love is attached to his promises. And that's a matter of his faithfulness to his word. So if God says he's going to do something, he will always do it. And that is part of one of, or that's one of the primary characteristics of love is that it keeps its commitments. And God, of course, always keeps his word. And because his word has existed with him from the beginning, it's impossible for him to break his word. Therefore, it's impossible for him to not love. Right? Exactly. Yep. So, him showing you love has nothing to do, like it says, with you being anything special or being a certain way on your own. It is simply because he is love and he must keep his word and he can't be anything other than that. So, there's no way he could ever not love you. Really important to keep in mind to understand his love. So to sum it up, all in all, God loves us in order to bring glory to himself and to show that his love is great and that he is a faithful father. It's always about pro proving his own character, proving his own wisdom, his own grace. It's not about proving something about us. So now we get into the second part of this, which is how God shows his love. And we'll look at four primary ways that he does this. Now, there are other ways that are smaller scale that God uses to show his love to us. And those will be things that kind of happen on a day-to-day -day basis that we might not pay attention to. But these four things are the things that we're given scripture for explicitly about where God's love is actually mentioned in these cases. So the first is we'll, we'll turn to Romans 5. John 3.16, of course, is like the most quoted verse in the whole Bible. So we won't turn there. If anyone in here doesn't know John 3.16, then we might have to question Kairos. a few things. Kairos. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, Romans 5. John 3.16, of course, is the scripture that says God loved the world by sending his only son. Romans 5 gives us a little bit more details about that, starting in verse 6. It says, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. We'll stop there. So this scripture teaches that the greatest show of God's love is the grace he offered in having Christ die for us when we were his enemies. So when we hated him, when... Uh, we, yeah, when we hated him, when we rejected him, when we sinned against him and had no interest in him, he went on his own initiative and died for us so that we could be saved, even though we didn't deserve it, we didn't ask for it, and didn't care. And again, it's a show entirely of his nature that's put on display. It's zero to do with what we did to deserve it or our behavior or any of that. 
there's a verse in Romans 9 that says that in, I think it's in the words of Deuteronomy that says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And then it says, therefore, it is not of him who wills nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. What that means is there is nothing we could have done to deserve his mercy because all of us were under his wrath to begin with. So him showing mercy and compassion was entirely his decision being motivated by himself. There was nothing we did that made him want to show us mercy. So it was just his character. And that was it. And Romans 5 here, of course, shows that on display with this ultimate example of Jesus dying for us. So that's Romans 5. Summarizing again, the point is that God showed that he loves us by dying for us to give us eternal life while we were still his enemies. That's the first primary way that God shows his love. And if there were, if there was nothing else that God did after that to show his love, that would still be enough. Even if there was nothing else that God did, and he still does a lot more things, but even if that was it, that would be enough because this is our eternity we're talking about. And even if we lived this entire life on earth in constant suffering, but spent e eternity with him, we would forget anything that happened on earth and we, we would know that he loves us just because of that gift of eternal life. Right? So that's why we have to stay focused on that more than anything. The second point is that God shows that he loves us by giving us the Holy Spirit. This is also in Romans 5. And we will look at Namely, verse 5, but I'll start in verse 3 so we get a complete sentence. And that says, And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. That just means have joy and peace in tribulation. Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Now, hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So we'll stop there before we look at the other scriptures. Basic explanation of what this means is that our hope, which is our expectation, is not going to end in disappointment for the sole reason that God gave us the Holy Spirit, Ephesians says, as a guarantee that we're his children and that we'll be in heaven one day. So if, if we had a hope or an expectation that we would go to heaven and then we ended up not, that would be a massive disappointment, of course. And what this scripture is saying is that God giving you the Holy Spirit is like his token or way of guaranteeing that you'll be in heaven before you're there so that you never have any fear of disappointment. That's what this scripture is trying to say. And that gift is his love poured out in our hearts. So feeling loved by God is meant to be directly connected to recognizing the amazing gift that the Holy Spirit is. So if you look at now in Acts, Acts 15, we'll go there quick. Acts 15 in verse 7. This is a situation where some leaders in the church at Jerusalem are arguing about the Gentiles because at this point, everybody thought that only Jews were supposed to be saved, but then God gave the Holy Spirit to a bunch of Gentiles and people were confused by that because they were like, uh, we thought that wasn't supposed to happen <laughs> type thing. So then 
uh, Peter makes an explanation that, that convinces them, and that's in verse 7. So when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. So if, if we want to understand what it means that God acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, that's where Matthew 3 comes in. So keeping your mind on Acts 15, go to Matthew 3 in verse 16. This is where Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River. And it reads, When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So this is the first time the Holy Spirit comes upon a human being for a permanent residence. And that first human being was, of course, Christ himself. And when the Holy Spirit comes upon him, the acknowledgement that comes to him from God is that he is loved by God and that God is well pleased with him. If you connect that with Acts 15 and that acknowledgement, it simply means that if God didn't love you and if he wasn't pleased with you, he wouldn't give you the Holy Spirit. The fact that he gave you the Spirit is his way of saying, I approve of you, who you are, your life. And what makes us approved is what Jesus did for us, which ties everything back to Christ's sacrifice and not our works. Because what Jesus did on the cross is what purified you. That's why Acts 15 says your, your heart's been purified by faith. Therefore, God gives us the Holy Spirit as the reward for what Christ did. And that Christ purified you. Christ made you qualified for that gift. But now that you have the Holy Spirit, there should be no question as to whether you're loved by God or not, or as to whether he's pleased with you, because, again, if he wasn't pleased with you, and if he didn't love you, you wouldn't have the Holy Spirit. So, very important thing to keep in mind there. Then we'll get into practically, so what does the Holy Spirit do, and how is that connected to the love of God, other than the assurance of it being eternal life? So that first is that, the Spirit, as we learn to hear his voice, brings us true relationship or communion with God. Second Corinthians 13, 14, you don't have to turn there, but it simply says the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you. Alongside, it says the love of God and the grace of the Lord Jesus. So it's identifying that one of the jobs of the Holy Spirit for a believer is to provide you with a communion with God. And that's a depth of relationship and fellowship with God that only comes through the Holy Spirit. If you look in the book of Acts specifically all over the place, it talks about examples of believers hearing the voice of the Spirit and being able to speak with the Spirit, so on and so forth. That's communion. That's relationship. So if you want to develop relationship with God on in the kind of depth that God desires, then that comes from having communication with the Holy Spirit. So that's that one way that the Spirit is God's love to us. The second, I mentioned it briefly already, is that the, the Spirit is the token of his promise to return from heaven and receive us to himself to be married to us forever. And that's connected to Revelation 19, which we'll go to. 
uh, Revelation 19.7. And before we read that, I'll just state this sub-point here. That on earth, we only get to experience God's love here in a limited way. We will experience an unimaginably great love of marriage to Christ when we get to heaven. But for now, we have the Spirit as the guarantee of his love, which will show fully when that wedding comes. So it is important to acknowledge, because it's true, that here on earth, we don't actually experience God's love to its fullness yet. We are given the promise of it, the guarantee of it through the Holy Spirit, and the guarantee of it through Christ coming to die. But we're not going to experience God's love and fullness until we get to heaven. But when we get to heaven, Revelation 19, 7 says what we're going to experience. And it's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. And yeah, verse 7 says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And the wife of the Lamb would be the church. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So when Christ returns, one of the first things that happens is that the church is eternally joined to Christ in a very deep and intimate way. And that's when God's love will be experienced by us in fullness, because right now we don't yet experience it in fullness. So those are points about the spirit. Then the third way that God shows us his love is through correction and discipline. This is one of the less popular ways, you could say, that God shows us love, but it's still very important. Uh, Revelation 3.19 is the first section we'll look at. This is where we get into the part of God's love that's the most fatherly, because obviously the marriage supper of the Lamb or the love of God being shown in this marriage to Christ is husband and wife symbolism. That's one type of God's love. The other type is his fatherly love. And fatherly love includes correction and discipline. And that's what is expressed here in these few verses, the first being Revelation 3. So if you look at Revelation 3 in verse 19, it says, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. I'll read that again. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. The other one is Hebrews 12, starting in verse 5. Hebrews 12, starting in verse 5, says, And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? 
For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So we'll stop there. So obviously it's expressing that correction and discipline are part of the love of God, but it's painful. It's uncomfortable, but he does this for us because he loves us and because we are his children, not because he's displeased with us as his children. Now, what's important about this to note when we go from being an unbeliever to a believer is that when you're an unbeliever, you don't really care that you have sin and you don't think about it when you mess up and you keep doing so on purpose. You don't care what God thinks about it. As soon as you become a believer, that's when you start feeling conviction or that's the first time you start feeling discipline for your sin. Now, one of the first things that happens is without understanding of God's grace and his love, it causes you to think that, oh man, like maybe God doesn't love me because all I feel is like terrible things about my sin. And like it's, it feels terrible that I, I feel so guilty and shameful and I want to change, but it's really hard and I feel like I'm not pleasing God, so on and so forth. All of us have had thoughts like that run through our heads. And what we're experiencing there is the conviction of the Holy Spirit. The fact that you're feeling that demonstrates that you are loved by God. If you weren't loved by God, you, in terms of being in a relationship with him, you wouldn't feel that. You would be in your sins just the same as you were when you were an unbeliever. So it's meant to be, that's why it says here, don't be discouraged, an encouragement when you feel conviction for sinning. If we didn't feel conviction for sinning, then we would be illegitimate sons and we wouldn't be in the love of God. Instead, we'd be under his wrath, right? So it is a good thing to, f to feel conviction. And if there's ever a time where it's tempting to feel discouraged, pay attention to this verse telling you to not be discouraged and remember that God's love is proven to you in that conviction that you feel and that should help motivate you to progress and to keep moving forward because um, what can happen is if that conviction comes and like i mentioned earlier you don't have very much understanding of god's grace and his love then it can turn into shame and then you start hiding away from god and you might stop reading the bible you might stop trying to be with believers because you just feel so ashamed and that's called sorrow of the world and it's hopeless sorrow, and the Bible says that that produces death. So as long as that conviction turns into an encouragement to keep growing and keep seeking God because you know you're his child and that he loves you, then it produces repentance and it's good. But if it ever turns into a hopeless, discouraged sorrow, it can be bad. So that's why it's important to remember scriptures like this to make sure you stay focused on God's love, which is that don't be discouraged when you're rebuked by him. So that's Hebrews 12. And we can also note that although it's painful, discipline from God helps us to become more obedient to him, which is the best for us. So Deuteronomy 5, 32 and 33 is a good one. We'll look at for that. This is important because when you think about why God would discipline you, it makes perfect sense when you understand that it's to help you become more obedient to be an obedient child of his. If God didn't care about you being obedient, then his discipline would have 
really no purpose. The fact that we're rebuked and disciplined means that one of God's greatest desires for us is to be obedient to him with our own good in mind. And that's what Deuteronomy 5, 32 and 33 expresses, which says, Therefore, you shall be careful to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You shall walk in all the ways which the Lord your God has commanded you. Here's the purpose, that you may live and that it may be well with you and that you may prolong your days in the land which you shall possess. So when we're obedient, life is better. That's pretty much what this is saying. If you're disobedient, life is worse. So if God disciplines you to make you more obedient, it ultimately makes your life better. It's with your good in mind that God requires obedience. And when he brings that discipline, it's about urging us to be more obedient, again, for our own good. Another reason why we shouldn't be discouraged when that discipline comes. I don't have this in the notes, but practically how discipline comes is also very important. The first way that's probably going to be most common is every time you read the word. When you read your Bible, you're going to come across scriptures if they're important for your life at that time. Uh, that will convict you. It will point out something in your life that shouldn't be there. It'll point out an area where you're disobedient. That's the first way that God corrects you. That comes from 2 Timothy 3.16 that says one of the things that scripture is profitable for is bringing correction to you. So if you want to stay under God's correction in a healthy way, that's one reason why it's important to read your Bible daily because that's the most common way that God will correct you. The second way comes from what I already mentioned, which is just simply your own conviction. So when you sin and you feel that sense of heaviness or grief from the Spirit, that's there to help move you to repent and make changes in your life. That's the second way. And the third way is from people. So that's when you receive instruction or correction from people. And that often is the hardest one to receive for people because you, you are receiving correction from somebody else that you know is also a fallible human being. So as a result, that causes you to come up with excuses or reasons not to listen to them. And all that is is pride. And there's a number of different proverbs that talk about this, but it says if you ever turn away from instruction, that's talking about counsel and criticism from people. That's what that word means in Hebrew. Then it says you will stray from knowledge and wisdom entirely. So if you ever stop receiving correction from people, you'll be getting further and further and further away from wisdom and knowledge from God. So if you ever stop listening to people, then you would stop listening to God. That's really what it comes down to. So this doesn't mean every single correction somebody gives you, you're meant to listen to, because obviously there's some people that are not following God that will try to correct you on something that's totally invalid. And in those cases, of course, we wouldn't want to heed it, but the Bible says we're still always supposed to be respectful when somebody corrects us. So if you ever react to correction or constructive criticism with self-defensiveness and offense or a reaction like that, that's just pride. doesn't matter who's correcting you, whether they're a fool or a wise man. If you respond to a fool like a fool, the Bible says you're no better than the fool, right? Um, that comes from Proverbs, I think it's 26, that says, um, do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. And that basically means don't talk to a fool like a fool. Otherwise, you're going to make him more foolish, which, <laughs> and yourself more foolish, you know. So I don't want to do that. So always be 
respectful when you receive correction from people. Always receive it well. And that will help keep you humble and that will help keep you under the kind of correction and discipline from God that ultimately keeps you repentant and keeps you growing in your obedience. Um, so again, as a reminder that reading the word daily, res- responding to that conviction from the spirit and listening when people give you correction or instruction, do those three things on a continual basis throughout your life. And that will keep you repentant and that will keep you humble. That's what it comes down to. Last, in terms of the ways that God shows us his love is by providing for our natural needs through the provisions of the earth and by continuing to do so even when we sin. This is one of the most commonly overlooked shows of God's love, especially by unbelievers. This is discussed in Matthew 5 first, so we'll go there. Matthew 5. Verses 44 through 45 says, But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. So if we stop there, verse 44 starts by saying, love your enemies. So what we're reading about right here is how God shows love to his enemies. We just earlier read in Romans 5 that says the first way he did that was by sending his son. Now we're talking about an additional way that he does that. And it says in verse 45, by making his son rise on the evil and on the good and sending sending rain on the just and the unjust. Keeping that in mind, if you go to Acts 14, verses 16 and 17, gives us the same thing in a few different words. Acts 14, verses 16 and 17, talking about God, verse 16 says, who in bygone generations, or in the past, allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. That's just their sin. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. So the good that God shows to his enemies, other than sending Jesus, is it says that he gives us rain and food, fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. So every time that whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, you eat food every time you get water, every time you enjoy a meal, every time you have a dessert you really like, anything about creation that you enjoy, all of that is a way that God is showing you love regardless of your sin. And it's the same across the board for anyone. That's why Matthew 5.44 says the just and the unjust, the good and the evil both get rain and sunshine. The earth the Bible says in Genesis, is always going to be the same until the day that it comes to an end. There's always going to be cold and heat, winter and summer, seed time and harvest. Everybody's going to be able to enjoy food and water until, and you know, rain and sunshine until we get to the tribulation, but that's a whole other deal we won't get into right now. Um, until that day comes, everybody gets to enjoy those things. It doesn't matter how good or bad they are. And the fact that God keeps creation stable and enjoyable like that demonstrates 
that he loves all of us the same in spite of our sin. So if there's if you forget all this stuff and you want something really simple that you can just focus on in a day, just think about, okay, like the fact that the sun came up this morning, even though I still sin, you know, is a demonstration of God's love, right? So real, real simple one there. Um, that covers how God shows his love. I will then go to the next section, which is how we can experience more of it. Of course, as I just mentioned, there's the task of simply reminding yourself of the things that we just looked at, because that helps you stay mindful of his love and therefore experience it more. But in terms of greater action, that's what these next two points cover. So the first is that we can experience more of God's love by learning and being obedient to his word. So we can go back to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Verses 12 and 13. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Starting at verse 12. says, Then it shall come to pass, because you listen to these judgments and keep and do them, that the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the mercy which he swore to your fathers. And he will love you and bless you and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your land, your grain and your new wine and your oil, the increase of your cattle and the offspring of your flock in the land which he swore to your fathers to give you. So we'll stop there. This is a different kind of love that's being talked about here than what we have discussed so far. Because notice in this passage it says, if you are obedient, and it says, then he will love you and bless you. But that almost seems contradictory to the gospel because we know the gospel is that he loves us in spite of what we do. But this is a different kind of love and we're going to look at a New Testament example of this in the words of Jesus. This is the kind of love that you're able to experience through being obedient, right? So if you take, for example, the analogy of just like a parent and child, when a child is really obedient, he has, Proverbs says, more joy from his parents, uh, more rejoicing in his behavior from his parents. He experiences more love from his parents simply because he's able to because of his obedience. But if you have a child that's really rebellious, well, then they're probably only going to get scolding and discipline and correction, and they're not going to feel a lot of love because they're not doing a lot of things that receive a lot of love, right? No matter how much that parent loves that child, he or she is limited from showing that love to him or her if he or she is in rebellion, right? So it's the same way with us, that God in his heart and his mind loves everyone the same, regardless of how you're behaving. But the more obedient that you are, the more of his affection you're able to experience because your behavior is pleasing to him, right? That's what Deuteronomy 7 is talking about. It's not saying he doesn't love you if you don't obey. It's just saying he's going to be able to reveal more of that love to you the more obedient that you are. He's not withholding it. You're doing it to yourself, right? That's what that passage is trying to say. And then the New Testament example is in John. So we'll go to John 14. And we'll start in verse 21. John 14, verse 21. Jesus speaking says, He who has my commandments 
and keeps them, it is he who loves me. Having his commandments and keeping them simply means reading and obeying the word. That's the person that loves him who reads and obeys the word. Then it says, and he who loves me will be loved by my father. And I will love him. And then it says, manifest myself to him. Everybody wants God to manifest himself to them. There's, there's nobody in, no believer in the world that wouldn't pray for God to be more real, to be more manifested, to be more present, to be more whatever, whatever word you want to use. And right, exactly. Jesus is saying here, if you want that to happen, do the work, right? He doesn't just grant you greater experiences just because, unless you're like Paul uh, and you get knocked off a donkey, but you'd also be blind after that. So um, we wouldn't all necessarily pray for that. So in this case, he's saying, if you want God to be manifested to you in deeper and more intimate ways, you got to do your part to have his word and keep it. Do what it says. That allows you to experience more love from him. And then John 15 says something similar. Next chapter of John says, As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. Verse 10, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So if you want to feel more loved by God, what do you got to do? Keep his commandments, right? Again, he's not withholding his love from you. It's just that you're not able to experience more if you're staying in disobedience because your behavior robs that experience from you. I have a sub point under here that says God will not show love to disobedient behavior. He, 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 of course, loves you, but he's not going to show approval for or love for disobedience, right? And that's one of the reasons why we're disciplined as an alternative, because that's the appropriate kind of love from him as a faithful father. Okay, now we'll look at the second way. Aside from learning and being, being obedient to his word to experience his love, we can experience more of God's love by showing it to others. This is technically an aspect of obedience because if you keep reading in John 15, right after we read verse 10 that says, if you keep his commandments, you'll abide in his love. Verse 11 says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. Then he says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. So he just said, keep my commandments and you experience more love. Then he says, my commandment, or what I want you to do, is to love others. So one of the best ways in terms of obedience to God that you can experience more of his love is by sacrificially loving others. Anytime you inconvenience yourself to help someone else as a representative of Jesus, you're not only showing love to that person, but you're going to experience more more of God's love as a result because there's reward for that. That's why Jesus says, I'll manifest myself to you when you obey my commandment to love others, right? It, the love becomes more real the more loving you choose to become. That's what that part means. Then John 13, a couple chapters earlier in verse 34, John 13, verse 
34 says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So if you want others to know that you belong to Christ and that Christ's love is what you represent, then we need to love others. That's the commandment that's given to us. And in obedience to it, that's when we experience most of his love. Wrap it up. You'll experience more of God's love by learning and being obedient to his word. And in so doing, focus on showing more of God's love to others. That's how you'll experience more. In the middle of that, keep reminded if we work backwards of how God has shown his love in creation, in correcting and disciplining you, in giving you the Holy Spirit and giving you eternal life, in Jesus dying for you while you were still his enemy. If you remember those things, you'll never question his love for you. And then remember that love is who God is. So there's never going to be a point where he'll stop loving you because it's inherent to his nature. There's nothing you can do to make him stop loving you. And that is God's love in a nutshell. Yeah. Questions or comments? Yes.